He's, uh, I want to say, throbbing at the bit because he wants to get up here and talk to you about what Christ wants him to say. So, Mr. Curtis Whiteley. Soon. A little bit of pressure there, Ron. Thank you. <laughs> uh, it's wonderful to see everyone here today, uh, as it always is. Uh, it's been a little while since I've been up here, so I think it was September of last year since I spoke. I uh, took a little time off, just busy with things and had, had other things going on, uh, but glad to be back, uh, glad to be able to participate a little bit in the Bible study uh, that we just finished a few weeks ago. And related to that, I just wanted to kind of get into uh, what I'm going to get into today, and that is a sermon series that I started a couple years ago, I decided to pick back up. Uh, I, two years ago, started one on 1 Thessalonians, and I'm going to pick that back up, and a lot of it was being inspired by uh, the Bible study that we did, uh, because, I mean, it was, I got a lot out of it. I didn't make it to every one of them, uh, but I thought, you know, I really like this style of, of studying the Bible, and so... I decided that that's what we would do, it, I would do, as, as I would come up with some series, some epistle, and it just kind of dawned on me that two years ago I started a, a, ser, a sermon series on First Thessalonians, life got in the way a little bit, and I kind of abandoned it, not, I didn't plan to always abandon it, but I was, I was thinking of trying to come up with a, a series that was kind of like the Bible study, but turn it into a sermon, I was like, I started one on, on First Thessalonians, and so I'm going to pick that back up. And so that's what we're going to start today. Uh, I hope to get through this in 10 sermons. There might be times where, you know, I have to, maybe it's a holy day or something like that, and we have to talk about something else if I'm planning to speak. Uh, but the epistle of 1 Thessalonians is a wonderful letter, like all of Paul's letters are, but it's a letter that's talking about a community of great faith. And I just want to give some background information about this letter. So Paul establishes the church in Thessalonica on a second missionary journey, and we can see this in Acts the 17th chapter. Paul had two traveling companions, Silas and Timothy. Salvanus is where the New Testament you know, calls him sometimes, or the, uh, the Latinized version of his name. After leaving Thessalonica in Acts 17, he would eventually send Timothy back to Thessalonica to get a report on how this church was doing and to encourage them. He was overjoyed to hear about the great faith they had maintained in their absence and wrote this letter to them around 50 to 51 CE. So this was actually an early letter of Paul. Scholars argue whether Galatians or 1 Thessalonians was one of Paul's earliest letters. It was an early letter of Paul. So let's go to the first chapter of Thessalonians and we'll read that chapter and I got some points. I got four points today that I want us to go over. Things that we can glean from this epistle. So 1 Thessalonians, the first chapter, it starts like this. Paul Silvanus, which is the Latinized version of the otherwise known individual as Silas. I'll use Silas from here on out. Paul Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath of to come. And so there's four points that I want us to look at today in reading this first chapter of First Thessalonians. The first one is, be a community that is committed to Christ. Now I will say that I am going to use the words community because Paul is talking to a community. He's not talking to individuals. But we can take that as individuals and we apply that to our individual lives. But collectively, I want us to think are we a committed community that is committed to Christ? How can we be a community that's committed to Christ? Now, we know in word we are a community that's committed to Christ. We've been baptized. We accept Jesus Christ as the Savior. But what about the actions? What does a community that's committed to Christ look like? One of them is a community that prays. That praise. We just mentioned at the last, our last message by Mark about praying for his wife, Darla. And we just went through the prayer request. The very beginning of this letter, we see just how much prayer is at the center of Paul and his associates. His associates being Timothy and Silas. Paul, along with Timothy and Silas, literally said that they present the Thessalonians specifically before God. By saying, we mention you constantly. You see that in verses 2 through 3. And later, Paul gives the Thessalonians themselves an instruction to pray without ceasing in the last chapter, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17. And we see late earlier in, in, in the Gospels, the parable of the persistent widow, we see how important praying, pray, pray, praying is and how persistent we are to be and how much it's supposed to be a part of our lives, as Jesus says in Luke 18. 18 verse 1, always pray and do not lose heart. Now these are just words. Are they words that matter and mean something? Of course they do. But let's just think about how this works in our life. Or let's just think about the application of this. I want to say this myself because this has been my experience with prayer. You know, prayer is not something that's easy. It's, it's easy to get wrapped up in our life. It's, it's easy to forget to pray like you should. I think it's easy to read and say to ourselves, of course, praying, right? It's a Christian thing. It's a core teaching of Christianity. 
Of course that's something that we should do. But sometimes in reality, even though we have that head knowledge, that intellectual knowledge, it doesn't really move much beyond being a matter of the mind and a matter of our language. You don't just pray just because you think you should pray. You should pray, but that's not the model in which Paul is describing himself and his associates. That's not the model that Jesus described in, his, in, in, in him talking about prayer as well as his doings. I don't think that Paul, or anyone for that matter in the New Testament, tells us to pray just because it's a good idea. But rather, what they are intending is for there to be an internal motivation. Because in their minds, those who are actually transformed into a growing nature of Jesus Christ with the Holy Spirit there's going to be this light that flicks. There's going to be this motivating factor that's going to happen. Just what motivates Paul and his companions to pray without ceasing? Or to continually mention these Thessalonians in their prayers? I think that it's a really simple analogy. It's the family bond. It's the family analogy that Paul has given us. Now we know that that family bond is through Christ. Paul and his associates had become family with these individuals. These individuals at Thessalonica, they have become family with. And we know that we have become family with each other. Now again, this can just become words sometimes. We can hear that. We can hear some of these common things that we say or we read about. We understand that we become members of the body of Christ. We're all part of the members. We're all part of that body of Christ. We're all members. We know First Corinthians twelve twenty six says, "And if one member suffers, all members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it." Maybe we've experienced this just in our life, with our own family. I think that. I learn more and more about how true this is the older I get, especially now as a parent. Let's just think about this. Those of you who have parent, or the, are parents or you have parents or you have family, which is most of us, let's just think about how true that is. How true that is. We as parents, when we see our kids suffer, when we see them happy and excited, when we see them achieve success, we are naturally prompted do the same thing. When you see your kids suffer, you're naturally prompted yourself to suffer. When you see them excited, it, it naturally makes you excited and happy. When you see them be successful, it naturally prompts you, of course, to be proud, to rejoice. This is the internal, na internal nature. These concerns, feelings, and responses, they're not artificially generated. They are natural responses. This is where Paul is, and this is where his concern for the members of this church comes from. Paul has become genuinely worried about what they have become after he left because he sees them as family, that family bond. And we see that Paul further draws this analogy later on in the epistle. We see that Paul says, but we were gentle among you just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. And Chapter 2, verses 7. 
And down in verse 11 of chapter 2, we also will read eventually, As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. Parents, we understand this natural concern, this natural family bond that we get with our children. And in like matter, that's what Paul is showing us. That is the motivating factor that is prompting them to pray. And we pray for our brethren. And we see that the model that Jesus gives us is the model that we'll look at in here in just a minute. So motivation generates genuine concern and internal longing. Which makes us have to think about some of the other things that sometimes come up in life when, it, when we talk up to people about certain things or when we make certain expressions. Let's just think about some empty words real quick. Okay? So, at first glance, if you look at this, and you were, for example, to receive a letter from somebody that, like Paul has presented to the Thessalonians, obviously we don't write like this, we don't talk to each other quite like this, we have different social norms, but if we were to receive a letter like this, of someone saying these things and these deep convictions, we might be tempted or inclined to think that maybe just the person was trying to butter us up. Oh, there's no way they're that serious. Come on, man. Are you really thinking about us like you're saying you are? Are you really praying? Well, that got me thinking. How prevalent that is in our own society. And even when we don't mean it to be. Let me explain what I mean by this. Let's just think about some of the social norms, the common culture gestures, right? We talk to somebody, we see somebody, maybe we haven't seen them in a long time, we're interacting with people. Hi, it's so good to see you. I hope you are doing well. That's a common thing, right? And there's nothing wrong with saying that, but let's just think about how sometimes that can come off, or that can be disingenuous because it's, there's really not being backed up by any true, genuine feelings. I hope you have a nice day. Let me know if you need any help. Yes, this dinner was amazing. I will pray for you. Have you ever told somebody that you would pray for them and then you left their presence and you really didn't remember to pray for them. That really didn't come to your mind when you were praying. Or if you were praying. And all of these, I think it's easy to use them as a social norm expectation. The reason I wanted to bring these out is because I want to contrast this to the actual genuine substance that was behind Paul's words. And if we're going to be a community that's committed to Christ... Those communities that are so are communities that genuinely pray for one another. And there's genuine substance behind it. If you were living in Thessalonica during this time, many of the Christians that were followers after Paul and Silas and Timothy's uh, missionary trip there were not Jewish. They were Gentile. If you were to read Acts 17th chapter, what you would learn is, is that a lot of the Jews rejected Paul and his associates' message about Jesus. They rejected the gospel. Many of them were Greek. They were Gentile. And during these days, Greek prayers were often offered in a manner that were very self-centered. They were artificial. They attempted to generate artificially a movement from the deities in which they believed in. Oftentimes, the prayer was some sort of reasoning with a deity of why some sort of response was necessary 
from the gods. So you're praying. You tell them, I perform this act or deed, so I should get this. God, I have kept all your commandments. I have given all my thanks to the poor. I pray five times a day. We even see this, of course, in the, in the Jewish culture in Jesus' day. I fast twice a week. In these prayers, they line up what one, the self-centeredness, what the individual has done for God as a way of maybe like a currency, so to speak, to get their way from God. We even see this, if you were to turn to Luke, the 18th chapter, we're not going to turn there, but we see this method of, of, of prayer often, both in the Jewish world of Jesus' day, as well as the Greek contemporaries and their philosophy and in their culture. But the model that Christ provided us, as well as Paul, is very different. That model of prayer demonstrates that you put God first and the needs of others. We see that Paul acknowledges God first, and as, first in his prayer and as the final role player. We give thanks to God always and in like matter puts the needs of others first just as we see in Jesus' model prayer. Let's think about Jesus, another great example. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's there. He knows his fate. He knows that just in moments he's going to be captured. He's going to be taken to trial. He's going to be beaten. And he's going to be crucified. Foreknowing all of this, knowing what was getting ready to take place, we see Jesus praying for who? Himself? He's praying for others, his disciples. Another way that we can be a community that's demonstrated to be committed to Christ is by our work of faith, love, and hope. Paul and Silas were overjoyed to receive Timothy's reports of how the Thessalonians were doing. Timothy came, returned, and let him know, guess what? The Thessalonians, they're growing even more and more from when we were first there. And Paul was overjoyed. And he will go on to talk about how much joy this brought him later on in this letter. And we know, like that family language that he uses, he truly was connected to this community through the Spirit, through members of Christ's body. So when Paul uses this phrase, works of faith, we are not given anything specific on what types of works, it's the Greek word, ergon, that the Thessalonians were grounding themselves in. But these works, as Paul delivers it to us, are works that were prompted by faith. Paul was able to say this not only because of what report was given to him by Timothy, but because he had witnessed it when he was there himself. Now this word work, ergon, has referred to many different types of works in the New Testament. And we know that there has been so much written on this ideology, this thinking of what Paul meant, this theology of works, works of the flesh, works of the law, right? In this context, it seems to be referring to good works, spiritual good works, works that were prompted out of their change, out of their true devotion as it appears in the Second Thessalonians later on in the companion letter of this first letter to the Thessalonians. In Jewish thought, good works were seen to be 
acts towards the needy, such as those who are poor, sick, downtrodden, afflicted. Nevertheless, I think that it's broader than that. I think it's more. Paul's trying to talk about more than just specifically what they did, because we know that Paul was not a man that was short of words, and he would have mentioned it. I think he was thinking of it in general, that he was so happy to see their works because it proved genuine their faith. It proved genuine their faith. And we see this parallel concept that Jesus teaches us in Luke the 6th chapter, verse 43. We see that Jesus says, For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit, and for men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. And in this passage, Jesus is telling us that a good tree cannot help but produce good fruit. And likewise, a good heart cannot help but bring forth good speech. In the same way, true faith cannot help but produce good works. Just like James tells us in his letter that faith without works is dead. In Paul's mind, there was faith of the Thessalonians, this community, and this faith was authenticated by their works, by what they were doing. That was illustrated by their changed life, their changed life by their commitment to the true Savior. Related to this concept, of course, is the next term. He does the three terms that we all hear about, faith, hope, and love, right? does it in a little bit different order. But this next concept is the idea of love, and it's another word that's related to the word works, labor of love. Labor in the Greek is the Greek word kopos, and love is the Greek word agape. We've all heard of that word agape before. These are acts of goodness towards others, and it is linked to work as we know that works and the idea of labor have a lot in common. If we think about it, the work that God has begun in our lives is a labor of love. It is not a passive idea, as it can be seen in how Paul couples the word love with the idea of labor. The labor of love, that you love someone, you have love for the brethren, and it moves you to labor. It moves you to do things for people. It moves you to show that love with sacrifice, possibly. Maybe it's time. Maybe it's financial. But there's some sort of sacrifice. The object of the Thessalonians' love in this context were their fellow brothers, brethren, believers there in the Thessalonian community, the leadership of the church, and believers in other locations, such as the regional brethren, Berea and Philippi. Jesus told us in John, the 13th chapter, verse 24, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another, and by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. But how do we show love? I think we need to remember that family analogy that we talked about just a few minutes ago. How do we show love to our family? Is it just a feeling? 
Is it just a feeling like we talked about how the idea of prayer can just be words sometimes or something of our language or a matter of the mind? Does love provoke us to labor, to long suffer, to never give up on one another, to help each other when we need help, even when we don't want to? There's the sacrifice. Even when we don't want to. Sometimes love prompts us and requires us to do things that we really don't want to do. And this is in all different relationships. It's in marriage. It's in child-parent relationships. It's in relationships between siblings. Even when we don't want to. And most importantly... I think this is the biggest, I think this is the core that was demonstrated by Jesus, and it's true for us. Love prompts us to forgive over and over and over and over again. It prompts us to forgive. You can't read 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, which we know is commonly called the chapter about love, and see that love is a passive concept. We know that the 1 Corinthians 13, when we read those scriptures that Paul writes later on, he talks about love, and we understand that love truly is an act of labor sometimes. But again, love is something that's natural. But let's stretch out the idea even further to our current context and our culture today and our society. Things going on. I mean, it's just hard to, to get away from the obvious, and that is just the absolute bitter fighting, the bitter, bitter political wars, the bitter cultural wars that are taking place. I was interested that, you know, this idea of culture wars has been going on a long time. It's not something new in 2021. Cultural wars have probably been going on, you know, I'm not super familiar, and, but since the 1960s, right? And that's typically when they talk about the cultural wars you know, the changing of different things. It's a little bit dated, but there was an article that was written by a guy by the name of John Ortberg in Christianity Today in 1997. And I was preparing this message, and I was using the NIV uh, application commentary, looking at some of the things that were written in there. And that's written by Michael Holmes, who is the commentator on uh, the First and Second Thessalonians. But he cited and talked a little bit about this article and I just want to kind of give you this quote that, that uh, uh, Michael Holmes, his comments about what Ortberg wrote in this article back from 1997. He said, John Ortberg observes, the first casualty of the culture wars is not truth, but love. Important as it is to promote or contend for biblical values and the so-called culture wars, it is even more important to live them. As Jesus himself said, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. There's an obvious and close connection between this point and the previous one. Without love, our proclamation of the gospel will be little more than a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And I thought that that was very timely and fitting, even though it was written in 1997. I think we're seeing the same things. We're seeing the same things today in our own culture. We see the culture wars abound probably more than ever. You know, the political infighting on both sides. And, of course, we see the church 
Christianity, that is, getting wrapped up in this. And unfortunately, sometimes, not demonstrating a lot of love. Not demonstrating much love at all. And almost wiping their witness out completely. Completely demolishing their witness when they act in ways that don't demonstrate the love of Christ. And they don't live the life in which they preach and proclaim. The next concept that Paul mentions is the endurance of hope. Now this word is the Greek word, hypomone. It means patient, endurance, perseverance, or an endurance of affliction. Now, this word, in the face of the Thessalonians, this endurance has to do with, of course, the trials that they faced, which was great persecutions. If you were to go back, as we just mentioned, to Acts, the 17th chapter, and read the founding of this community in Thessalonica, you know that they were highly persecuted. At least Paul was, and then the believers uh, that you know, decided to follow Paul's message, they tried to bring him out, arrest him, and they didn't really care for, of course, you know, this new doctrine that they thought was turning the world upside down. And that's actually the words, that's actually the, is in Thessalonica where we get that terminology, where we get those individuals saying those things. But the English word endurance, it's interesting because this week I was greatly reminded of just the other night uh, uh, what this word's all about when I was watching a high school soccer game. Got some soccer fans in here, people that know a lot more about it than I do. And of course, I played it when I was young, probably stopped at like seven years old and focused on some other sports. But for 40 straight minutes, 40 straight minutes, I watched 22 high school kids run up and down a field, not a 100-yard field. I mean, the end zones included, the, you know, the, the sidelines extended out. You know, I'm used to football, right? Football is it's 100 yards, and then there's a 10-yard end zone on each end. They have the entire thing, and they even make it wider in soccer. But for 40 straight minutes, I watched 22 high school kids run up and down a field almost nonstop, except for the very occasional stop and play, when maybe someone would score a goal. And that usually only lasted about 30 seconds. Then there was a 10-minute halftime. Then they did another 40 minutes. And let me tell you, this was something that tired me. I mean, I played sports my whole life, but I mean, you think about basketball. You know, I've watched basketball more than soccer, and you think, you know, it's a court. And they're running back, and, you know, it's, it's tough. And you think about, you know, how much ground you have to cover, you know, in a soccer game. It was very impressive that these high school kids were able to do this and then take a 10-minute break and do it again. So they did this twice, as there are two halves in high school soccer with a 10-minute halftime. But the endurance of these players, as I was thinking about this, it, came, it comes from two places. It comes from two, in two ways do they get the endurance that they need. First, they obviously train their bodies, right? They train their bodies to be able to withstand the natural response of physical exertion. You know, when we run like this, we have, you know, a, you know physical exertions. You know, it creates an elevated heart rate. And due to that, our muscles need more oxygen. Okay? So it's difficult. It's not very easy. We, we, we put a lot of stress on the body. This creates a lot of physical stress on the body, which makes it very difficult, coupled with the fact that the opposing player, of course, 
are trying to prevent you from getting the ball where you want it to go. You can, you know, run all the way down the field with the ball, and all of a sudden it comes to nothing because some other player that's opposing you kicks it 40 yards down the other way. And then you have to run back and try to do it again. It's a difficult sport, very difficult sport. I always knew it was difficult, but it gave me a new appreciation uh, for how difficult the sport was. So in order to continue to do this for a long period of time, a person has to train their bodies and prepare it in order to gain the needed endurance to perform under this physical pressure. The second factor of their endurance comes from their motivation. They're motivated by something, right? Their motivation, their intended aim, of course, is to win the game by scoring more goals than the other team. So as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about this idea of endurance of hope and what endurance entails. I think it's the same as, as, for us as Christians. I think it's very similar. We must have endurance in order to cope in the face of life's hardships, of the stress that life brings us, which can take many different forms. You know, it could be financial issues, financial stress, marriage issues, family issues, health tragedies, death of loved ones, a myriad of different things that life can throw at us that causes us stress. All of these can trigger doubts, maybe even depression. We have times in our life that we, have, we can look back on. Maybe we're going through it right now. Maybe we're going through a trial at this very moment in our life. Maybe we're not. Maybe there's things we can look back on, though, and we can see those trials, and we can see, you know, what it was like to go through those. Paul, as we know from other scriptures, a few years ago we did a series, uh, the Count of Pentecost, and hope was one of our Bible study topics in that series. Hope is the key. That future hope, that Despite what's happening now, I know the end game. I know what the goal is, and it sustains us and carries us. Hebrews, the 12th chapter, verses 1 and 2, says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, for the joy, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And here it's talking about the great cloud of witnesses, those men and women of faith of the past. And we are to lay, every side, lay aside every weight that may ensnare us. And it's interesting that it talks about Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, who for the joy, for the joy future, knew the goal, saw that, and was able to endure the cross because of it. Here's a quote from Robert Thomas, who is the author of the Expository Bible Commentary on 1 Thessalonians. He says, Endurance enables one to cope with the trials it encounters and living for Jesus Christ. It accepts the seemingly dreary, blind alleys of Christian experience with a spirit of persistent zeal. It rules out discouragement and goes forward, no matter how hopeless, humanly speaking, the situation. Another key, I think, to this hope, of course, is our next point, our point number two. Points two, three, and four are much shorter. Another key is, of course, 
Be a community that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Be a community that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. In Paul's words, the gospel came to the Thessalonians and the power of the Holy Spirit. We see that Paul doesn't give himself credit. Paul gives credit to God of these individuals, these, this community's conversion. In Paul's mind, God had elected these individuals and the evidence for it could be seen in two parts. Number one, first was, how, was in how bold they're preaching. When he said they're preaching, he said Paul, Silas, Timothy. They were amazed themselves at the boldness that they were able to have in wake of the great persecutions that were coming at them. This left little doubt that they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. Which is interesting because here you see Paul, and Silas, and Timothy doing something very effective and knowing this isn't of us. This is of God. This is the Spirit at play. The second piece of evidence, which is very related, of course, was in spite of this persecution, not only was Paul and Silas and Timothy able to continue to preach the Word of God, the Gospel truth, but they actually had individuals that were there. Remember, Paul and them, they could go there and they could leave. They were journeyers. They were on missionary journeys. They weren't stationary at Thessalonica like these individuals were. But despite this, despite these individuals in Thessalonica, knowing that this is their hometown, knowing full well the difficulties that this may create, they accepted, they accepted the gospel message. They were convinced that Paul and his companions were of divine, uh, was a divine intervention because they saw the convictions of, Christ, or of Paul and, and his associates. So be a community that is empowered by the Holy Spirit by being convicted, which is the title of this message, in Christ. At the outset, at the, the behind the scenes of what these Thessalonians saw and Paul and Silas and Timothy was their conviction. Their conviction. The Greek terms full assurance, that is in other places that we see here, and full assurance is linked to the Thessalonians' conversion, which was seen in Paul and Silas and Timothy's complete conviction. They didn't just come there with a sales pitch, with words. Their deep conviction is what they were, uh, is what they saw. And not only that, it wasn't just their conviction. We kind of go back to the idea of what turns off people to Christianity sometimes, right? We start talking about, you know, sometimes people, they say they have a, you know, a, a great talk, a great speech. You know, they say the right words. They know a lot about the Bible. They seem convicted, but then, of course, they see the way they live their life. That's not how it was for Paul, Silas, and Timothy. These Thessalonians, they not only saw their great conviction and what they were saying, and that conviction rang through true as they saw the persecution come, they also saw what manner, the behavior, the conduct of Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They saw that their conduct matched. Their conduct matched what they were saying. And that conviction that genuineness rubbed off on the Thessalonians. And they became imitators of Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Which we have to ask the question, when we speak of Christ, when we speak 
about Christ, when we preach Christ, you know, to other people, when we're in conversations, do we demonstrate ourselves to be convicted in who He is? And does that conviction bleed into our conduct, how we treat other people, our long-suffering, our patience, the fruits of the Spirit, do the fruits of the Spirit come out demonstrating our conduct to be in line with our conviction, our verbal proclamations of what our convictions are. Sometimes, you know, I think, you know, going back to what I just said, that what turns people off to, a lot of times to Christianity is, you know, seeing this contradiction between speech and, 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 and conduct. What one says and what one does. And so sometimes I think people, and I've actually had conversations with people that aren't believers and talk to them about what turns them off. And sometimes what's expressed to me, and I've, I've noticed that sometimes this can be a theme with some, is that they feel like they've seen a lot of people like this and they think that their real motivation isn't a true conviction, but rather their motivation, that is the people that they see that say one thing but do another, is that they just want to look good. It's just an image thing. They want to feel morally support, superior to, to other people. They have ulterior motives than what they, were, what they were saying. Or they're just checking a box, right? They're just checking a box. They say, you know, mentally they're Christian. They're checking a box. They're not really believing it because their life doesn't really follow. We also can be a community that's empowered by the Holy Spirit by, by bearing witness to the gospel. Bearing witness to the gospel. Verses 6 through 8, 1 Thessalonians, the first chapter. Paul says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Their reputation had went before them because of their conduct, because of the genuineness that was taking place here in the Thessalonian community. Now this word sounded forth is a figurative, figure of speech, so to speak, that brings out the idea of an echo of a trumpet's blast. Sounding and echoing and expanding far beyond the blast itself. Now we don't, you know, we don't have a lot of, you know, maybe you hear a band, maybe you hear instruments play. You know, we hear tornado sirens. Tornadoes was mentioned in the first, first message. We hear sirens and we can sometimes hear the echo ripple through. And it travels long away. The news of their testimony, that is the testimony of the Thessalonians had gone forth and people all over the region had heard the manner of faith that they had, the genuine faith. And they had become, sort of speak, as Paul says, like a moral pattern to the region, a moral pattern after which churches should follow. Now, I think that the New Testament is, gives us this model, kind of reflects this model or this sentiment. What we see as we read the New Testament story is a transformation of the disciples of Jesus into apostles who go forth in power. Right? And the message, the reputation, the news of this power goes out. The same disciples who all fled Jesus 
and denied him in our gospel accounts, as we can read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are now going openly and preaching Jesus, despite the danger it might bring them, and despite the persecution it might bring them, as well as the ridicule. Of course, what enables this is the power of the Holy Spirit. The same works that Jesus did when he was with them, now the disciples are doing themselves and greater. As Jesus said in John 14, verse 12, Most assuredly I say to you, He who believes in me and the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And we see this prophecy of Jesus, essentially, come true as we read the book of Acts, as well as we see and hear about different things that are happening in the epistles of Paul, as well as the general epistles. This was their witness. Of course, they had to prove it from the scriptures. So they had to prove it. They had to prove Jesus, that he fit and aligned with the Old Testament prophecies. Of course, they had to prove that, you know, Jesus, you know, he arose from the dead. We have evidence for this. You can go to Jerusalem. This is where his tomb was. People saw him be put in that tomb. He's not there anymore. Of course, they had to prove that, but that was not enough. That was not enough. That is not, the, that was not the witness that really convinced those people in Thessalonica. It was their conviction. It was their conviction and the evidence of the Holy Spirit that was demonstrated. And we see that demonstration of their witness, of their conviction, resulting in the transformation of the Thessalonians themselves. My third point, point, be a community that is differentiated from other religions. Be a community that is differentiated from other religions. Now, we know that Thessalonica was in the Greek world. It was very influenced by Greek culture. It was a port city. Lots of people came and gone. Lots of different ideas. You know, oftentimes, when we see Paul talk about, you know, them turning from idols. Oftentimes, I think the Bible speaks of idols. Of course, we know it's vain worship. This is because idols don't do anything. They're simply inanimate objects. They have no power whatsoever. They have no power to save. They have no power to transform. And they have no power to intervene in our lives. They're not real. There's no substance to them whatsoever. But what do we think about when we think of other religions? Of course, when we think about the Bible, we read examples of actual worship, like physical worship of other deities, physical worship of other physical structures like idols. We probably think about, in our own day and age, when we think about other religions, the religions of the world, right? The major religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, Taoism, Confucianism, some of those are more of a philosophy than a religion. But those are some of the things that come to mind. If you were to type in Google world religions, you would hear and see some of those different religions, those terms pop up. But I think that we have to expand this. We have to be much more expansive in our thinking when we think about modern day idols, modern day world religions. Because I think that even in so-called Christianity, some, I'm not talking about, this isn't about you know, mainstream Christianity. I'm saying that there are some parts in, within the world that claim to be Christian that 
really are not truly, of course, faithful adherents to what these scriptures have to say. I think that we have to be much more expansive, though, in our thinking when we think about the modern idols of our culture. Another interesting quote by Michael Holmes, the author of the NIV Application Commentary, says this. It says, for the sake of the gospel, it is critical that we affirm, maintain, and teach one another what makes Christianity different from any other religion or religious movement. It is equally critical that we identify and repent of the idols of power, ideology, and materialism. All of these of which I think have become modern idols in our modern society. To the extent that we worship these in place of Jesus, we are in danger of becoming just another political movement, lobbying organization, or consumer group, scarcely distinguishable from the rest of society. I think that this is timely, even though this is a little bit of a, I mean, this is, wasn't written this year, um, but it's, it's a, been written quite a few years ago. But I think it's very timely for our culture today. And we talk about the idea of, you know, of course, you know, be a religion or be a community that's differentiated from other religions. And so, you know, you make sure there's, there's no idols, there's no, you know, no, nothing physical that you're bowing down to. You know, you're not practicing any kind of witchcraft and you're thinking, well, I'm, we're good, right? We're not like other religions that do those things. But I think it's much more deeper than that. I think it's, it's somewhat time sensitive. What idols... Maybe the motivation, the intent is the same, but they change a little bit over time. And I think in our modern day and age, I think a lot of this can be seen in modern day Christianity. And that is going back to the culture wars or the political wars. Of course, this doesn't mean that we can't vote. It doesn't mean that we can't have political views. We can't talk and reflect on the culture and political issues that are going on, which are in our face, which is difficult. I do think that there's something to be said, though, of our adversary really trying to pull Christians in to this system that's happening. Now, we can talk about the system of you know, laws that are being passed and some of the political issues that maybe we don't agree with, but I'm talking even further, this system of getting us to bite the cheese, so to speak, right? Okay? To take the bait to start fighting with each other, to start arguing, to taking a stand. And, you know, metaphorically, and, you know, it used to be I am of Apollos or I am of Paul to the point where we're coming like, I am of Ted Cruz, I am of Donald Trump, or I am of whoever. It's getting to that point, I think, that we have to ward against this. It's okay to reflect and talk about culture and political issues, but we have to make sure that our faith should inform our views not our views, politically, cultural views, inform our Christianity. We have to make sure that our views, this is what's first. And of course, if it helps us, if it helps inform us to have maybe a political inclination, left or right, then that's all good and well. But first and foremost, we have to be about the work that's talked about in our New Testament by the apostles, of what Christianity is all about. And that is going to all nations. And it didn't just say all nations. It also says the regional areas at the beginning, right? Okay, Go to all nations, of course, 
but also go to all Judea, all Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, everywhere. Right? So it's not just going to all nations. Of course, that's what Christianity it was to, to go forth from the world, but don't neglect just the regional areas that we come into contact with, our neighborhood, our workplace, going to a restaurant, how we act when we are out there. I think that there's a key theme in Paul's opening here in 1 Thessalonians, and that's that genuine Christianity, the genuine gospel of Christ, is marked by total selflessness and complete surrender to upholding the glory of Christ. This is demonstrated, of course, through our thankfulness as we see Paul thanks God through our works of faith, through our labor of love, through our steadfast hope. And the key to all of this, of course, is the living God. The living God. He is the linchpin that makes all of this possible. He's the one who provides with his ability through his spirit to produce in us that transformation. That transformation. If we are serving the living God and not the idol of self, politics, ideologies, we inevitably will be different than other religions because the living God is a God who is transforming us into the image of his son. And so at the beginning I said there were four points. I was confused. There were three points. So uh, there was three points and one sub-point. So that's where I got four points. So in conclusion... If we want to live a life that is convicted in Christ, we must be committed to Christ in our prayers and our works of faith, love, and hope. We also must be empowered by the Holy Spirit that bears witness to the gospel and live a life that demonstrates that we serve only the living God, rejecting the modern idols around us. And let's not fool ourselves. There are many modern idols that are around us.